Hello, I'm Tony DeVolto and welcome to this week's Our History Podcast. Today's guest quite literally walked in off the street, but in truth he came to Carlton from halfway around the globe. Born in Kantara in northern Lebanon in 1966, he grew up in East Brunswick, just a short tram ride down Sydney Road to the front entrance of the place then known as Prince's Park. Remarkably, he seemed to find his niche as an Australian rules footballer very early in the piece. By 1983, he was named All-Australian following the Teal Cup Carnival, so he seemed destined for greatness at senior league level. He was five days short of his 20th birthday when he made his senior debut for Carlton, and his maiden appearance was a horror story. A serious knee injury would put him out of the game for a considerable period of his early career, but he somehow found a way back, and after a long and loyal period of service to his club, he was ultimately rewarded with a place in the all-conquering Carlton Premiership team of 1995. As a wingman halfback flanker, he's fondly remembered for his sheer athleticism and for turning baldness into a fashion statement long before it became chic. Dubbed the cranium by the madcap game caller Rex Hunt, but known to his friends simply as Mill. He is, of course, Millam Hanna, and he's today's special guest for the Our History podcast. How are you, Mill? Good, Tone. Very good, mate. Mill, there's a lot to cover, and we really should begin with your early life uh, and your earliest memories of Lebanon, where you grew up. Uh, Northern Lebanon it was, Mill, a little place called Kentara. What can you tell us about it? Look, to be honest with you, I don't really remember much because obviously I was uh, I was five when I um, came to Australia. But they say, you know, like before the age of five, it's difficult to remember things. But I do remember, you know, like particularly smells, and I remember in... Um, in my grandfather's house, just the smell of um, aniseed herbal tea. And it was interesting when I, my first um, contact with that when I was in Australia just triggered memories back of my um, my time in Lebanon. That's about the only thing I can remember, apart from um, what I've been told where uh, neighbours were very happy to see me leave. <laughs> I used to terrorise a lot of the neighbours' dogs and let them loose and poke at the beehives and all that, so I was a bit of a terror. Was aniseed or is aniseed herbal tea part of the um, the staple dead at the Fitz Cafe that you now run? Well, no, I don't have it there, actually. I should, but um, I've got it in my, my home and my kids love it. It sounds very uh, uh, tasty, Mel, yeah. and I'm actually disappointed you haven't bought in a couple of ducks today. <laughs> However, we move on, and I wanted to ask you about accompanying your mother and sister on, on the flight from your homeland to Melbourne, Australia. You arrived on Cup Day 1971. What do you re- remember of the flight and the day you actually arrived? Look, the only thing I remember about the flight was just, you know, sitting in the plane and just looking out the window, um, you know, once again, you know, reflecting as a five-year-old kid, looking at the clouds and thinking, I wonder if that's Australia, I wonder if that's Australia, and just always thinking that one of those clouds was Australia. And it was, it was a sort of uh, quite a, you know, realistic thought at the time. Um, but you know that's you know kids um, you know imagination going wild at the time. Do you remember actually you know setting foot on the tarmac at the airport arriving no, in Melbourne? No, I don't actually. I don't remember any of that. No. And of course you were young, as you say. But I suspect for your father and mother, um, maybe it was the the greatest move they ever made. Um, do you know a lot about their early lives in northern Lebanon and you know the the difficulties they faced there? Well, it was it was a. My dad uh, immigrated five years before we came out. 
by himself. Obviously, at that time, we couldn't all afford to come out once and he didn't have anything. So he came out for five years, managed to get a job and you know get enough money to put a deposit on a house and hence then sort of sent for us to come over at that time. Um, but, you know, my, you know, the Civil War broke out in Lebanon about that, you know, sort of a few years after that. So that was a sort of difficult time in Lebanon and uh, my older brother and older sister were still there, which they came when the Civil War broke out. And I remember my dad talking to me probably about a week before he died about three years ago. And, uh, you know, he had, uh, you know, um, dementia and and he kept uh, <laughs> pounding into me. He goes, oh, what a great move I made coming to Australia. And, you know, and for years my dad's been saying that. And my dad's quite a sort of chauvinistic, arrogant, sort of, you know, typical Lebanese man. And and every time he'd been speaking to me about that, I've been sort of, you know, just, yeah, yeah no worries, Dad, that's fun. But this time a week before he died, I thought, you know what, Dad, you're right. That was a great move, you know. And I look back and reflect, and I thought, you know, you know, what a you know, courageous move to come out here, and as, as most migrants done. And and um, and I look back and thinking, what what would I be doing if I was still in a little village in, in northern Lebanon, or or in fact, you know, he had um, my mum's um, father, all their brothers. In fact, my grandfather was born in Brazil, and all his all his brothers were there. Now were sort of you know many generations there, so I could have ended up in there, but um. My dad, I think, pulled the right rein. I think I'm right in saying you yourself haven't returned to northern Lebanon since that day in 1971 you came to Australia. You do have an intention to go back one day with your children? I do. We spoke about it just recently, um, Megan and I, and it's just a difficult one because, you know, we've got young children, 12 and 11, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a volatile area. You know, and it's not so much where the village is because there's not really much trouble, but you got to get to you got to get to the village. So you got to get into Beirut, and you know, and it's uh, you know where our village is. It's not actually far from the Syrian border, and so it's um, it's volatile. And I'm just not sure if I really want to go there now with two young children. I think you know later on when the kids get a bit older and they're a bit more independent, and you know, and um, you know, look at some stage you got to make a decision and say, well, you know. You know, I do want to go back. You know, I feel I feel I feel this urge to want to go back because, you know, it's it's my history and uh, you know, you know, I, I wasn't born in a hospital. I was born in some you know house in somewhere in a village there, and you know, I know my children would love to go, and that'd be you know, gobsmacked in terms of seeing where I came from and. For sure. And were your father's family or your mother's family amongst the casualties of war? Did you lose family members through the course of the civil war? Not that I know of, not, not the sort of immediate family. Um, as I said, a lot of the casualties um, occurred mainly in and around Beirut and on the border of Israel and stuff, and we were sort of, you know, the, the village of somewhere they didn't really attack. Uh, look, I'm, there may be casualties um, on my dad's side, I think, you know, through cousins and all that, but I'm not aware of it. And the family pretty much settled in East Brunswick for the time they arrived? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as my dad bought a house and... When when my mum and my little young sister and I came in seventy one, in that house, uh, my mum's still in that house now. And um, you know, looking back, it was a, it was a great area, East Brunswick. It was you know two minutes walk to my local footy club at the time, which was good things. But my parents didn't drive, so I would have probably had a hard time getting to a footy ground. Um, so you know, and East Brunswick's become quite a trendy area now. So. How did you cope, like with the you know the transition, your change of country, change of culture? I know you were only a five-year-old boy, but I, I suspect you know the first time you spoke English was at primary school. How did you manage to cope and adjust to that? It was. I don't remember. Honestly, don't remember being it. It been 
really difficult or traumatic or anything like that. I can't remember any of those sort of memories, but, you know, obviously I couldn't speak a word of English. And um, you just cope, you just survive, you just got to do it, you know, you do what you do and you learn and, you know, and I suppose that's one of the things about being in a situation where you're not privileged, you're not, you know, being, you know, chauffeured to, to school and all that kind of stuff and you just got to fend for yourself. And in fact, in the early years, my dad was working at GMH Holden uh, doing night shift and starting work at, say, uh, four o'clock in the afternoon and my mum was working in a factory and she'd finish at five. So there's a period there there was no one home and we're talking about, you know, you're leaving a five-year-old kid and a three-year-old girl at home by themselves for a period of time. And you just, you know, I just thought that was normal, you know. I mean, uh, as as a parent now, I wouldn't even leave a 10-year-old, let alone, you know. So it's sort of, it's just, there was no, there was no choice, Tony. You just you had to work. It was just survival. And you seem to be always a person that is fairly confident and upbeat and, and you, you have a really good outlook on life. Do you think that that actually helped you through as well? You were glass, glass half full, as they say. Yeah. I must say, my wife, that's the criticism she has of me now as a person. She says I'm too optimistic about things, whether it's business. And, and she's probably half right in some ways because she's always looking at the worst scenario and, you know, she looks after the business as far as the finances and all that, and that's a good thing I've got her because it's sort of it's a compliment. But yeah, that that's probably one thing, you know. And even I, you know, even my early memories is you know when I was sort of starting to play football in primary school as a ten, eleven year old kid, and, and I became a Carlton supporter, you know, avid Carlton supporter. And I used to tell this story. I say, God, I used to wake up and I used to have dreams about me playing for Carlton, literally nearly every second night. And, and as a 12, 13, 14 year old kid, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking. Jeez, it's only a bloody dream, you know what I mean? But it was so clear and vivid in my in my memory that it was almost real. But I never ever at any stage when I'd wake up think to myself, I'm never going to play for Carlton. But I think there's something there where there's a subconscious belief that you never never trigger, that you've got this belief that you're always, you know, in the back of your mind it's working without you even realising. And I think that's important, whereas, you know, I don't know. It's just it's it's difficult. I'm I'm a believer that you know you're doing something, you just do something. It's a great story, Mill, and and just in respect of your formative years, um, what I think is important to stress here that during your schooling at East Brunswick, perhaps what made it a little easier for you was the fact that there were Lebanese children at the school. There were Turkish kids, Italian yeah. kids. That must have helped your cause also. Yeah, it did. You know, and that's probably what I uh, touched upon before when I said I can't remember really that period being. At extremely difficult period for me because I'm sure there were other kids in the same boat as me whereas if I'd been put into a place where everyone was Australian you know it would have been a lot lot more difficult so and as in the schooling progressed you know after a couple of years you could speak English but even during high school you know the most of the kids I went to school with I mean my my high school East Brunswick High we had 500 students there were only two kids in the school that were Australian in the entire school so that makes it easier in terms of do you remember your first dealings with that little piece of oval-shaped leather mill, the first time you actually kicked a footy? Where was it? What were the circumstances? Well, I think the first time there was a, there was a kid that obviously met who, who lived across the road from our place, family home, and he obviously introduced me. He was born in Australia, Italian guy, but he introduced me to Carlton, and he was a Carlton supporter, so I thank him for following Carlton. His name? Sandro, 
Sandro Alfaro. He's a mad Carlton supporter. In fact, he's the um, he's. I'm not sure if this is his right title, but he's the secretary or head of a media liaison for the Australian Police Association. So he's right hand man to um, um, you know the the boss Greg. Um, so he's a great fellow, been lifelong friend. But I think I think he introduced me to it just you know at the local park, and then the next introduction I got to it at primary school, and my first ever coach, believe it or not, was Colin Kinnear. Colin Kinnear was my primary school teacher, who also coached me in primary school, so that was my contact with it. And I guess that again shows that it was meant to be that the dreams yeah. that you had were starting to materialise. You're right. You, you seemed Mill from the outset to be able to you know handle the oval ball no problem. I mean you you were excelling at junior level and you know I mentioned the Teal Cup experience. Was that the case? You you seemed to be able to adapt pretty quickly to the game and and what it demanded. Yeah. Look, I, I don't know. Probably the earliest memories of me playing football at a reasonable level would probably be about a twelve-year-old kid. I can't really remember much beyond that whether I was any good or not. You know, obviously I must have shown some talent, but you know, and even even in my early years at East Brunswick, um, you know, we had a pretty reasonable team in that league. But I wouldn't have said I was. I wouldn't have been the dominant player there. You know, there would have been four or five other players who probably would have been better than me at the time, you know. So it was just one of those things where it was just that, I don't know, upward spiral just improving every year and then just sort of, I don't know, growing a little bit between sort of, you know, the ages of 13 and 16, I sort of shot up a little bit. Was Cole Kinnear an early influence on your football? Um, I remember, I'm not sure if he was. He, he probably was at some, he must have seen something in me because... Um, I remember one of the when I was in grade six, and well, he reminds me that um, actually I was in grade five, and at the time, and we were playing a game, and you know, obviously with grade sixes as well. And I remember um, I was captain of that team as a, as a grade five kid, you know, and you know, but we're also you know, you, you're at a school where there's not many football kids, you know, they're all soccer, and it's just a lot of you know Greeks and Italians and Turkish. So, but um, yeah, and as and as as we progressed, on, he's always been a great supporter of mine. So, so your career progressed as a league footballer. I'm curious to know whether there is any sports pedigree there. W- was your father a sportsman? Was your mother actively involved in any sports at all? Or, or well, if you ask my dad, my dad was a life goblin soul. If you ask him, he'd be saying he was a he was a champion sports person. <laughs> yeah. But my Colin Kinnear tells a story that um, if you talk to him about it, he says that my sister also we went to the same school. He says that my sister Nadia, the most talented sports girl he'd seen in his in his time during primary school you know really good netball and stuff like that and obviously she you know didn't really progress because through you know the way it was back then and your own career as a footballer progressed at junior level and obviously you know you you, you know played in representative teams in victoria um you could see you know the the career path panning out before your eyes you were making progress i couldn't see now i couldn't have possibly have seen what would have eventuated no i saw what i saw was oh well you know i've got invited to train with a victorian under 15 football team i was i was over the moon and i thought god you know there might be a chance i might be able to make the you know the list here and, you know sure enough you make your short list of 30 or 40 whatever it was and and then you think oh, i might have a chance to make the team here then you make the team and then then you get invited to under-19s in my first year as a 15-year-old kid getting invited to under-19s and 
and then there were 60 players training and I thought, oh, God, I hope I make the list here. And then they cut the list and you make the list and you're thinking, I just want to play a game, one game. All I ever wanted to do was play one game for the under-19s because I knew that my name would be in the paper because they used to list the under-19 names. I said, that's it, one game for the under-19s. So I got my first game, played on the bench against Fitzroy Junction Ables, my first under-19 game. So then, you know, I played the whole year there as a 15-year-old kid and played, you know, half the season on the ground, half the season on the bench. And the following year, I thought, oh, I might play full-time here. And I did. And then the year after that, I thought, there might be a little chance I might play a reserve game. How amazing would that be? And throughout this whole time, all I was ever thinking about was just just playing that one game for those sort of levels of football. And I did play a reserve game and played a few, and I thought... And then I sort of started to entertain the idea of maybe there might be a chance I could play maybe a night game or something or a practice game with the seniors. You know, and then you know, as a 17-year-old kid, I got a night game, and I thought, well, that's pretty cool. So throughout that whole process, it was just little increments where I was never ever in my wildest dreams that I ever have a vision of me playing nearly 200 games for Carlton. It was out of, seriously, it was just, it wasn't even entertained, you know, and, and then you go through and you play your first senior game and you, you, you know, you play in a premiership, you play for Victoria, you do all these things, but it never, at no stage you ever stop your way, you stop yourself halfway through the journey and say, well, that's it, Mill. You played your first senior game. That's enough. It's time to stop. And it's a bit like, you know, when Bill Gates made his first million dollars, he doesn't turn around and says, I've made my first million. It's time for me to retire. It's, it's, not, it's got nothing to do with that. It's more the journey of just going through it. So that was how I, you know, and as I said, I never even thought in my wildest dreams I'd ever go beyond even one under-19 game. Your coaches at Carlton through that early period of your junior football, can you talk a little bit about who they were? And also, were there any contemporaries of yours as a player that also came through at senior level? Um, throughout my junior career, um, there, were, there were none from my local club. Um, or, sorry, your first question first, coaches were, uh, obviously, early years were um, Trevor Keogh, Jeff Southby, they were my two coaches, in the, um, ter- both terrific coaches. Um, under 19s, it was interesting. Just a little one on Jeff Southby, who was coach. I was, I think, in my last year in the under 19s, I was captain of the under 19s, and it was early in the season, and I was just struggling as a captain. I remember there was a game at Cadinia Park, and I was, you know, I got dragged, and I felt really embarrassed. I said, Here I am, I'm getting, getting dragged here as the captain of the under 19s. I just, and I had two weeks in a row, I just, I don't know what happened, I just couldn't get a kick. So, interesting enough, the following week, they decided to put me in the reserves thought that's strange and just never looked back mm. so you know I look back and thinking you know as as you know I coached my son's team for a couple of years you know clever thinking you know sort of you know thinking well maybe that's that's what's required so so that are my early sort of junior coaches um was there far, a player that came through with as, you as far as um in the under-19s, I would say when I first started there, some of the some of the players that you probably would recognise that I played with in under-19s in the early years would have been um, Ricky Nixon. Um, obviously, he's been in the media a bit. Um, there was, um, you know, Mark Williams, who played a little bit. Uh, Mick Kennedy played in the Premiership. Um, you know, Shane Robinson, some of that sort of 87 sort of crew. Uh, Jamie Dunlop, who was my best mate. Um, you know, unfortunately he sort of hurt his back and 
played 20 or 30 games or whatever it was. He so, was there. so it wasn't a bad little yeah know, we nursery, had nursery. We, yeah we had a we had a reasonable team you know I think you know I think you know in in hindsight you look back and I certainly I played with some players and you know and you know I look back and I'm thinking God these these guys were terribly unlucky not to play senior football very talented people you know and you look and maybe it was a function of the way it was and you know people will say oh, what do you think it's harder to make AFL now or back then well that you can't answer that all you can say well. You know, given the fact that at any point in time, it's a side supply demand theory. You know, when I played, there were 12 teams. So you've got to fit only 12 times 40 players could play. Now there's 20 teams. So effectively, you've got, there's more people that can play. And if the AFL turns around tomorrow and says, righto, we're cutting the league back to 12 teams, well, there's going to be eight teams that aren't by 40 players who aren't going to get a game. Mm. So, in effect, I look back and I, you know, and no pot on any current players of any sort, but I see players now and I think to myself, and players from other clubs, thinking, players that I played with during Unknown's Reserves, in my view, were players that could have definitely made it. And it was just, unfortunately, it's just the way numbers. It's just yeah. the way it was back I, then. I should specify for the record too, Mill, that you were a Carlton player based on territorial links. Yeah. It's a zone. We're the zone. East Brunswick was in Carlton's zone. Mm. So, Now, um, at what point did you get the call up for, or did you know you were going to get the call up for that opening round of 1986? Were you there about? Did you feel you were close? Well, I knew I was going to get a game. That was, the, that was probably, you know, when you asked me before, did you ever think you are going to play AFL? And I said, no, no, no. But there was one time in my life that I thought I was certain about what was going to happen. I knew I was going to play the first game in 86 because I'd come off a pre-season where I I was playing actually full forward. And I think I played full forward in the last home and away practice match. And um, and one of my absolute idols and heroes in my time, Bruce Dahl, I think, I kicked six or eight goals on him, you know, and I thought, surely I've got to get a game, you know. And now obviously he's just didn't have his career and stuff like that. And I had a brilliant pre-season that year, brilliant pre-season, you know. Um so I was very confident I'd play that first game. And you were playing. I mean, you, I remember you lined up at full mm. forward. So you were playing as a full forward. I was playing as a full forward the last two or three practice matches. Had you played in that position at local level? Why, why no, full forward? I don't know. I'd never played that position. I'd play you know, at local level. I was midfield, wing, and all that kind of stuff. And um, I'd never played in that position. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I just maybe they just played me there, and I kicked a few goals and played me there again. And um, yeah, it was. Um, it was, it was interesting. Like my first game, I played a full forward and never played there before. And I'd imagine you must consider yourself as something of an ambassador too, because I, I, as I'm pretty right, I think, in saying that no player before or since born in Lebanon has played VFL, AFL football. Yeah, I don't think anyone's, yeah, who's been born in Lebanon has played. I think there might have been a Lebanese player previously who's, who's obviously parents are from Lebanon. Um, Ray yeah. Garby. Yeah. Ray Garby here was one. Ray Garby, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's look, it's – never you know, that's another thing I never thought about. But, you know, as you get older, you become – you become a bit sentimental and you you look back and you think, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe you know, look at, look at um, Majak Dor, you know, like he's going to – you know, he'll pave the way for some people. And, and there's – I don't know, maybe it's a, you know, a little tick for yourself to say, well, it's not easy to, I don't know, to be a trailblazer or whatever, whatever you want to call it. And as I said, I never even thought about it at the time. I just, you just do it. 
It's a great story, Bill. And the game in 1986 was memorable for a lot of reasons and, you know, obviously painful for you too, specifically. But you you made your senior debut with, I think, Stephen Coonan played his first game for Carlton. Craig Bradley played in that game. Bernie Evans played his first game for Carlton and yourself. I think Peter, Peter Motley. I think Peter Motley was out. Was he, oh, he Peter Motley didn't play that game. Yeah, but um, and Pe- I think Peter Kenny played his first when game. Was John Dorotich, what year was yes, he? Yes, John Dorotich as well. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was it was that was that year where I mean it was recruiting coup to get those players yeah. oh. across. It was it was unbelievable. You said Duel was still playing. You know, all these Ashman was there. There was still these great players involved. You actually went into the game wearing the number 47 for the one and only time in your career. Mm. How did you end up with 47 and why did you ditch it? I don't know how I ended up 47. It was just the jumper I was given and I didn't really, you know, as I said, for me it was all about, you know, I, I didn't understand any, I didn't understand the culture of jumpers or numbers or anything like that. For me it was, you know, my focus was just, you know, you know, just playing just playing that game and then obviously when I got injured and missed the whole year, the following year they asked me and I said, you know what, I've had a lot of bad luck. I'm just going to take the bad luck number. And that's how I looked at it. So I took 13 because I knew that I said, you know, this is no one wants this number. I'm going to have it. And as it turned out, for the next 10 years I played, I think I missed two or, two or three games through injury. Incredible. Yeah. And you know Peter Francis hasn't forgiven you. <laughs> number 47, of course. And that particular game, Mill, you know, you mentioned the bad luck. What actually happened that caused you to do your knee? Do you remember it? I do remember that. I do remember that incident. Um, it was the first three or four minutes of the game. The ball comes down. I'm sort of – I've let out from the goal square, sort of half-forward flankish towards the half-forward flankish. I was on – Glenn Howard from Hawthorne, who was playing on me at the time, which I, which I saw recently at a party. Um, I went up, and as I was, as I was up, he actually shoved me in midair. He actually pushed me in midair. I actually managed to still take the mark. But as he pushed me in midair, it might have been as I was coming down, I actually lost, I lost track of where, I, where the ground was. So I actually, my, my foot, my leg hit the ground without me realising. I didn't know where it was. So it was just, it actually dislocated, it buckled, and it sort of popped back in. And I thought it was, God, it was sore. And I stood up, and I was, you know, 35 metres out on an angle, and I took the kick, and I nearly actually collapsed when I took the kick. I think I only kicked it about 20 metres. And anyway, I came back, came off. And um, Goffey was there at the time, and Goffey goes, oh, come on, you need to come. And I was um, jogging up and down. the. I was still trying to jog on the boundary line, knowing that I've torn my anterior lateral ligament, chipped a bone off my, on my thing, because I was just on high on adrenaline in just my first game, first five minutes. So anyway, after the game, the game had finished. I'm in the room, and... Um, and um, our doctor at the time, God, what's the, um, was Doctor Fraser? No, it? Tony. Um, um, he was. He went to Footscray. And he, God, I can't believe I've forgotten his name. Anyway, um, he was looking looking at my knee, and um, I said, "Oh, doc, just give me the best and worst case scenarios." And he said, "Oh, best case scenario, best case, you'll be out for one week." I thought, "Oh," even that was. Devastating for me. He goes, worst case, four weeks. When he said four weeks, I seriously nearly died. I thought, four weeks? Nah. Anyway, the next day I was in hospital wherever I was out for 13 months. So that was, and, I, and, I, and, and at that time, lying in hospital, after I'd come out, I'm drugged up, lying in hospital, and I'm thinking, 
those bloody dreams I had early in my life, this has just come to haunt me now. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like bloody hell, it's all over. I, I felt like it was all, my whole career was over because it was just like, Jesus, you know? So that's how, that's how I felt at the time. Did you get a lot of support from, you know, the coach? Oh, the club, the was, the, the club was sensational. The club, you know, and I love the, of the, love the club as most people know, but the club was sensational. Like I, they supported me 100% and, you know, I ended up going to the exhibition game in Japan at the time, even though I wasn't playing. And, you know, I was going to uni at Rosden College and they'd give me taxi vouchers every single day to go to school and come back. And, you know, like I couldn't be, you know, you know, they, they were sensational. It must have been a, an amazing range of emotion for your family too. I guess mm. they were there that particular game at Waverley, you know, to see you break through first in your game and then the despair of breaking down, you know. It, well... My um, my mum wasn't there. My mum's only ever seen one game of me play, ninety three grand final. It's the only game she's ever watched live. Why is that? That's by her choice. Uh, I think it's just one of those things. Traditional Lebanese family, and she didn't want to go. She was nervous. My dad, I don't think, would have let her go anyway, right? And she went to that one grand final, and that sort of she just never went after that because I got knocked out in that grand final. As yeah, you know. that one did go to script mill. So, um, but it's interesting. But talking about you know, like my my family. Sure, my dad was there, but that was look. I might be wrong here, but I reckon I reckon the first game my parents ever watched me play football of any form might have been maybe my first reserve game. That was it. So I spent 10 years playing football. They'd never watched me play one game of footy. So that was, you know, it's interesting you talk, you know, I talk to my son about playing footy. I'm saying, yeah, you've got to support your kid and all that, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, you got to let him go, you know what I mean? It's... Absolutely. You had that physical setback with your knee injury. And there was another um, question I want to ask about your hair. I mean, you're like, you're, I don't know what point you started to lose your hair. I mean, you're, you know, you've got such a distinctive mm. head, people remember it. Uh, and yet it wasn't uh, by design. You lost your hair. Yeah. What, what, what actually happened? When did it, you start to lose it? And was it a, a psychological hurdle you had to overcome? I think I started losing my hair when I was about 12, just, you know, slowly but surely, you know. You know and if you look at my head now, there's, there's areas. I, can, I still grow hair in certain areas, right? Um, but just slowly just started losing my hair and, you know, and that was thinking, oh, God, that was, that was tough. That was probably way tougher than coming out from Lebanon, you know, because as a 12-year-old kid, you're going through. And, and I think maybe that's one of the other things that, you know, when, when something like that happens, you then you tend to sort of to compensate for it. You tend to focus on other things, and I I focused on my football and my sport. And I was never never went out. I never drank alcohol. I still I still have not had a cigarette in my life. So for me, that whole period of my life, from twelve to sort of when I started playing at Carlton, you know, as I said, I'd, I'd never taken cigarettes. I'd never smoked marijuana I'd, I'd never hardly ever drink obviously I started drinking when I was started playing at 17 18 a little bit and during, and I you know whilst all my friends at the age of 16 17 were going out all the time I just never go out on weekends I just sort of stay home and for me that was because I lacked confidence because I had you know didn't have much hair and I didn't think you know I mean I, I liked women but it was just one of those things where so that I think that made me a little bit more determined to do well in an area where I could thought, well, if I can't, I can't excel in those other areas where my friends are going out and stuff like that. Well, I'll, I'll excel on the football field, you know, and that's a way to sort of, um, you know, 
Uh, and that, I think that drove me for a long time. You know, I remember it was a game at Windy Hill and I was playing the reserves and I had the wispy hairs. They, I looked like Don King, if you remember, Tony. <laughs> and it was windy and, and I was playing out there and I was getting so much abuse. Seriously, I was getting abused by the crowd there at Windy Hill. And, yeah, they're calling me every name under the sun. I can't and, imagine it. And, Windy Hill? I know. And they got, I, got dragged, I got dragged halfway through the second quarter. And as I was getting dragged, like going past these guys, they were just giving it to me and I felt so like, oh, what am I going to do? Anyway, so I got dragged, put me on, back on halfway through the third quarter. As it turned up, I ended up kicking, I think, five or six goals for the rest of the quarter and a half. So then I was running off and I still remember just looking at these people and they were just just deadly silent. And I sort of learned to lesson then. I'm thinking, well, you know, that's what you do because... You know, obviously, you know, I've got that, and that's in terms, and that's, I think that was my philosophy throughout that time with my hair and stuff like that, and I'm, I'm grateful that it happened because I could have ended up, you know, I went, I went to school and I played football for a long time with people like the Mockbells. They were my friends at the time. They're the people I hung out with, you know, to a footy club. So I was, you know, that's what I did. Were you ever the subject of any racial taunts, whether from uh, opposition uh, players or the crowd? All the time. And again, how did you deal with that? Oh, it didn't bother me. That did not bother me one little bit. I never took offence to any race. You know, it was just, I was this type of, I don't know, maybe the way I am. I may be, even now, I'm not a, I don't take things that personally and, you know, I just sort of, um, you know, Wog, all that kind of stuff, you know, bald bastard, whatever it is, Kojak, and that didn't bother me anymore. I didn't, I didn't really care. It's just, it's just the way I am. I, I had friends of mine that would infuriate them, and it would, they would, you know, Lebanese, you know, kids that I went to school with were crazy. Would just, you know, really, you could, if, if you even looked at them the wrong way. Mm. It's, it put you in good stead, though. It's yeah. well. Yeah. That concludes part one of the Milam Hanna interview for this week. Stay tuned for next week's episode of the Our History podcast where Mill will reflect on the premiership of 1995 and the disappointments that were the 93 and 94 final series. If you have any suggestions on former players you'd like to hear interviewed, you can contact me at Twitter on CFC underscore DeBolfo. Thank you again to Luca Ganano and we'll see you next week in the next episode of Our History. Thank you.